Welcome to Saints. In this podcast, we'll be discovering and discussing fascinating insights to topics and events found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. This new four-volume narrative is a history of the Restoration. You can also read it and all the material we'll be discussing today on LDS.org or on your Gospel Library app. And now, Saints. I'm Ben Godfrey, and today I'm joined by the Director of Historic Sites for the Church History Department, Jennifer Lund. Welcome, Jenny. Thanks, Ben. Glad to be here. I'm also joined again with our friend Sarah Eyring. Sarah has recently read Saints Volume 1 and will be sharing her thoughts and questions in our episode today. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much. Today we're going to be talking about chapters 26 and 27, where we're going to learn some pretty interesting things and some difficult times that the Saints had. Jenny, can you set the scene for us a little bit? We're in Far West. Joseph and Oliver, kind of what's happening there? And uh, what's the situation now between Joseph and Oliver? So the situation actually really goes back to Kirtland and the failure of the Kirtland Anti-Banking Society. Oliver lost a substantial amount of money in that, as did Joseph and many other saints. And that's causing uh, turmoil in the church, which is complicated by the fact that the whole nation is in an economic crisis. So... Oliver has been in Missouri, and he, in the wake of those challenges, he has been, he decided to sell the land that he owned in Jackson County, but he sold it against direction in Revelation, and really in violation of his covenant to consecrate his goods for the building of the kingdom. And so that moment really represents a definite break in Oliver's relationship from the church. And we start to see some things where he starts to meet with other dissenters and not attending his meetings. And so we start to just kind of see these things happening in his life that are going to take him out of the church. He's frustrated, and I think many of us can at least understand, having lost his money, why he may say, I have a right to sell my property to try and recover something. We can kind of understand that, but at the same time, um, he had made covenants and there was revelation that said, don't sell your land. So the high council is investigating Oliver, is that right? Yeah, so the high council investigates and they're also investigating members of the Missouri stake presidency. David Whitmer is the stake president and other members of the presidency who have also sold some land. The high council excommunicates them. Uh, but they don't do anything with Oliver because he, at the time, is assistant counselor in the First Presidency. So they don't really have stewardship over Oliver. And so they wait for Joseph Smith to arrive in Missouri before anything is moved forward about Oliver. Let's listen to a little clip here from the book that talks about this uh, situation with the High Council and Oliver Cowdery. Oliver chose not to attend the hearing, but he sent a letter for Bishop Partridge to read in his defense. In the letter, Oliver did not deny selling his Jackson County land or opposing church leaders. Rather, he once more insisted that he had a legal right to sell the lands, regardless of any revelation, covenant, or commandment. He also resigned his membership in the church. This is a really difficult moment um, for those of us who we were remembering, you know, he's, he was there at the priesthood restoration. He, he sat next to Joseph as he... He voiced the words of the Book of Mormon, you know. This is hard. How could this be? It's really hard. 
for Oliver and it's hard for Joseph. So the we know that the account of the hearing says that Joseph stood up and recounted all the things that he and Oliver had done together, all these marvelous experiences, the receipt of the Aaronic priesthood, Melchizedek priesthood, all of that. And this must have been a very painful moment for Joseph as well. We're going to have to wait all the way to volume two of Saints to really find out the end story with Oliver Cowdery. But I would just invite our listeners to look at saints.lds.org where you can see topics about about Oliver and uh, about more of this this particular episode in church history. Well, they are in Missouri now, and Joseph has received a revelation about some land that they call Spring Hill. Can you tell us a little bit more about Spring Hill and this revelation? By this time, the saints are really established in Caldwell County in a town called Far West. That's the main settlement in Caldwell County. But there's a need for more land for all the settlers who are pouring out of Ohio and coming to Missouri. Some of those people are very poor because they're the last to leave Ohio, and so they need land which is cheap. And Davies County has not yet been surveyed yet. And so they can get land cheaper in Davies County just by squatting on the land and then developing it. And so the saints are looking for settlement places to the north in Davies County. And a few saints go up to an area which is called Spring Hill, and it's along the Grand River, which is a beautiful river, and it's navigable by a steamboat. So it connects to the Missouri. So you could take a steamboat actually up this river, which means this is really prime settlement area. It's also really good farmland. And so a handful of saints have actually gone up to that area and established a kind of some scattered farmsteads up there. But Joseph Smith goes up with an exploring party looking for additional land, and they determine that that should be a settlement place. And while they're there, Joseph has a revelation that tells him that this is the place where Adam gathered his posterity to leave on their heads a final blessing before he died, and that it also has millennial promise where uh, the saints will gather again. Let's listen to a little clip here that talks about that experience. The men climbed the bluff and set up camp, then rode back down to the ferry. Joseph said he wanted to claim the area for the saints and build a city near the river. The Lord revealed to him that this was the valley of Adam on Diamon, where Adam, the first man, had blessed his children before he died. In this valley, Joseph explained, Adam would come to visit his people when the Savior returned to earth, as foretold by the prophet Daniel. So what is the place like today? And when it, is, when it says that the saints will gather there, does that mean we're headed there in the future? Tell me a little bit more about this. Well, when you work with historic sites, um, you're thinking about the places where significant events in the church happened. And Adam on Diamond is certainly one of those because the Latter-day Saints had an important settlement there, although brief. But Adam on Diamond is, is different and because it's got this ancient significance, this kind of biblical era significance, and it also has a future or millennial significance. So sometimes I like to refer to this as a millennial site as much as a historic site. And today, over many decades, the First Presidency has purchased significant mounds of ground there, which is leased to local farmers. So it's beautiful farmland. Visitors can go there, and there are a couple of historic markers that tell a little bit about the site. It's very pristine. 
very quiet, very meditative. I had an opportunity to visit there with um, my daughter. She was 15 when we visited. And that's exactly the feeling that we had. You know, it's this very peaceful place. I remember just standing there trying to think, like there, there were hundreds of homes here, you know, and maybe they were just log cabins. Still, there were, there were, there were people, like this, was, this would have been a place with noise and horses and cattle. And it was hard for me to kind of sense that in these just rolling, beautiful fields that you see today at the historic site at Adam on Diamond. It's maybe a little harder to imagine the historic place, but I think it's easier to imagine maybe the millennial place because it does give that sense of peace and beauty and solitude that we also expect in the sacred grove. It is a beautiful place, and I know that not all of our listeners are going to be able to go to this uh, fantastic historic site, but if you go to history.lds.org, there's some wonderful resources there where you can see the site, you can read about the places, and there's beautiful photography of the place, and you can get a sense of, of this peaceful landscape that Jenny's describing for us today. Across the sea now, we've got, we've got some missionaries that have gone uh, over to England, and uh, it's, it's Heber C. Kimball and Willard Richards. Can you tell us about what's, what's happening on that side of the pond, and are they having any success over there? So the story of the British mission is actually really interesting in this period because it provides such a, such a contrast. Here in Missouri, things are very difficult and uh, lots of issues the church is facing. Yet over in England, the success of these missionaries is just phenomenal. It is as if these people have been waiting for this particular message. And so Willard Richards, Heber C. Kimball, and the others who are working with them are just having incredible success. Where are your ancestors from, Sarah? Are, are they from England? Many of them are from England, yes. See, the, and that's the same for me. These, these are my people. Um, uh, the, the Godfreys that my line passes through and, and others on my mother's side it's because of Heber and Willard and other missionaries who went there at this very t- moment in time that they joined the church. And, and that's where I trace back my family's membership to the church from. So this is a personal as well as it's a, it's a fantastic part of the story for Sarah and I both. It, does it affect your family as well? So I do have some British ancestors, but they're a later time period. Okay. But the ball gets rolling here. Yeah, absolutely. Which is going to affect a huge number of American saints. There's a wonderful part of this story that I just loved. Um, Willard Richards is a single man. And he's he's a little bit older for the time. Mm-hmm. Um, today, we wouldn't think anything of it. But he, he sort of feels a little bit like an older bachelor. And Heber C. Kimball tells him about meeting someone special. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So... Heber C. Kimball writes to Willard and says, I met your wife today. Her name is Janetta Richards. Now, Heber was known for having a gift of prophecy where he could occasionally do this kind of thing. And so uh, Willard, I guess, takes it seriously. In fact, let's listen to a little quote here from the book that talks about this experience where Willard Richards, for the very first time, meets Janetta Richards. Richards is a good name. Willard said as they walked. I never want to change it. Then he added boldly, Do you, Janetta? No, I do not, she replied, and I think I never will. 
I love this little playful moment that Willard has with Janetta Richards. And in fact, they do get married. They do. And uh, she doesn't have to change her last name. So Heber C. Kimball was a prophet. He did meet, he did meet Willard Richards' uh, wife. A little bit different than today's missionary experience. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, they found each other. So then we move on to chapter 27. And we're going to learn a little bit about Wil- Wilford Woodruff. Can you tell us about his efforts to teach his family, and how did that go? Wilford Woodruff was from Connecticut, and so as he went on missionary journeys, he joined the church very early, I think 1832, and then as he went on missionary journeys back and forth, he would stop to visit his family and try to teach them, but it was never received very receptively. And so on this occasion, he uh, goes home and teaches his family, and again meets real resistance. But he is persistent, and he is convinced that he knows the truth and that his family needs the truth. And he is eventually able to convince them, and so on this journey, finally, he is able to baptize his father and stepmother and I think one of his siblings and, and uh, some neighbors and friends. Let's listen to another little quote here from the book about this experience uh, with Wilford Woodruff. On July 1st, he preached one more time to his family, declaring the words of Christ as fervently as he could. At last, his words reached their hearts, and their concerns faded away. They felt the Spirit of God and knew that Wilford had spoken the truth. They were ready to act. Wilford led his family immediately to a canal near their house. At the water's edge, they sang a hymn, and Wilford said a prayer. He then waded into the water and baptized his father, his stepmother, and his sister, along with an aunt, a cousin, and a family friend. I don't know about you guys, but for me, this story feels super real, in that he, it took a long time. And for many of us, we might have friends or family members that we talked to for years, and for Wilford, it took a long time, but he didn't give up. And it gives me a little bit of hope to not give up. And I also just love this image when they're like, we believe. And he says, let's get on down to the canal. <laughs> <laughs> and he just gets it done, you know. And I, I love that part about Wilford Woodruff as well. He just kind of gets the job done. I think this is another great example, too, of um, people who really receive the gospel in their hearts and then make a change immediately. And that can be, you know, in, in being baptized immediately. And some some people that we've read about in this narrative, they immediately live on leave on missions that last for years or they move across the pond, as we said. And anyway, it's just incredible to me the sort of faith that these these people had. Kind of total commitment at that point. Completely. Once they make the decision, then it seems to be total commitment for many of them. Definitely. We have some others who seem to not be as committed in this story, and uh, we have some prominent leaders that have been excommunicated. There's a, for me personally, there's a difficult part of this story, and this is a sermon that Sidney Rigdon gives. It's in Missouri. Can you tell us about that? What's the context? What's going on? And what is he trying to accomplish by this SALT sermon as it comes to be known? So the SALT sermon is delivered in uh, late June of 1838, and uh, the church has this kind of dissident noise going on, particularly at Far West, and Oliver Cowdery is one of those voices who's left, but so are David Whitmer and John Whitmer 
and others in the community. And there are actually some dissidents who are starting to meet together. And is this going to be a rival? Is this a rival to trying to build Zion? What kind of issues is this going to cause in the community? And so Sidney gives a quite rousing address in which he uses the story from the New Testament where uh, it talks about what good is the salt that has lost its savor, just good for trampling under feet, essentially. So that's what he says. He doesn't name names, but the implication is clear that he is talking about some of these leaders who are in the process of falling away and maybe creating a rival church or a rival group. So that's what he talks about there. They see that as a real threat uh, to the church and to building Zion and to the peace of the community. Now, you have to always take Sydney within the context of the times because preaching during that era, era was very fiery. This is a hellfire and damnation kind of talk. And so that was just very common. It was not uncommon at all to condemn your neighbors down the street in a, in a sermon in just very fiery tone. So you have to make know that that's within the context. So this would be, they wouldn't have seen this as unusual. Today, that is so unusual for us. It, we wouldn't imagine this yeah. going down in our sacrament meeting. It, it does feel just like out there, you know. In my mind, I'm thinking this is a leader of the church. You know, this is like a general conference talk, and we don't yell at people in general conference. <laughs> we talk about peace and love and Christ's teachings. And so, yeah, it does feel really foreign to me as a person in 2018. But what you're saying is it wouldn't have felt so foreign to them. No, it would have felt perfectly normal. If they'd heard that kind of very, the kind of talks we give today, being very persuasive and gentle, that would have seemed foreign. <laughs> it is a reminder that we are foreigners in the historic land. We have to remember that we're not there and it's not, not our time frame. There's a British novel and it has a great line. It's the big opening line. It says, the past is a foreign country. And you have to remember that when you're talking about history is that it is so different in the past that it's actually like visiting a foreign country. Speaking of foreign things, I think many of our readers will have encountered something foreign in this chapter, which is something called the Danites. It's in this moment of all this violence in Missouri and, and mobbings and so forth that we learn of this group called the Danites. I was one of those readers who was totally surprised by this group of people. I'd never heard of them. Can you tell us about them? The Danites, they're really hard to pin down the details of because this was a secret group. And oh, secret groups don't tend to leave a lot of records. <laughs> and what they do leave is often misleading after the fact. So it's, a, it's, a cha it's been a challenge for historians to understand the Danites. But this group actually did exist. And it was formed by some Latter-day Saints in Far West who were on the more militant side of, uh, of people. And they felt that they should uh, protect the saints. So, And one of the first things they were going to do was to help eject the dissenters from Far West. And so that's one of the things they did. They wrote a document to threaten the dissenters if they did not leave they would face harm. It wasn't specific about what kind of harm, but they would face harm. And so that is what inspired those dissenters to leave far west. 
They continued after that. Now, the the real question has been, well, did Joseph Smith know about this? Right. Did the First Presidency know what, about what this? Did the, what did church leaders know? Did What did they authorize? What, what do we know about that? So we know that they they knew about it. Exactly when they found out is a little questionable, but they did know about the Danites and apparently approved of some of their tactics, but probably not all. Joseph Smith later writes a letter from Liberty Jail in which he says that much of the testimony about the Danites that was delivered at Joseph's trial, he said, was not in the hearts of the First Presidency. So they did not know about some of those things. Now, some of that testimony can also be exaggerated. That's a problem when people are trying to protect themselves and giving their own testimony. So that it's really complicated. Later on, the Danites become this just fictionalized, sensationalized, they're like dime novels that are written, and, and it just turns yes. into something that... The very first Sherlock Holmes novel, A Study in Scarlet, actually has Danites in it. Right. So it helps give birth to Sherlock Holmes and movies, and, and everything bad that happens in Utah is blamed on Danites. <laughs> Yet there is absolutely no evidence that the secret society existed in Utah in any way. It's very short-lived, just a few months in Missouri in 1838. So I'm interested to know what else we we have on the Danites, uh, where they come from and, and their purpose and even their name. There is a topic at saints.lds.org that talks a little bit more about Danites. Um, let me just read just a little bit from that for our listeners who may not be familiar with this. At the Latter-day Saint settlement of Far West, some Latter-day Saints organized a group known as Daughters of Zion, or Danites, whose objective was to defend the community against dissident and excommunicated Latter-day Saints as well as other Missourians. Danites intimidated church dissenters and other Missourians, for instance. They warned some dissenters to leave Caldwell County. During the fall of 1838, as tensions escalated during what is now known as the Mormon-Missouri War, the Danites were apparently absorbed into militias largely composed of Latter-day Saints. These militias clashed with, with their Missouri opponents, leading to a few fatalities on both sides. In addition, Mormon vigilantes, including many Danites, raided two towns believed to be centers of anti-Mormon activity, burning homes and stealing goods. While anti-Mormon vigilantes targeted and sometimes killed non-combatant Latter-day Saints, Danites primarily confiscated or destroyed property they feared could be used by their opponents. Historians generally concur that Joseph Smith approved of the Danites, but that he was probably not briefed on all their plans and likely did not sanction the full range of their activities. The Danites existed for only five months, from June through October 1838, and were only ever active in two counties in northwestern Missouri, Though the existence of the Danites was short-lived, it resulted in a long-standing and much-embellished myth about a secret society of Mormon vigilantes. One of the people that I was so glad to read about in this chapter was Elijah Abel, who um, was a, a black member of the church who received the priesthood and even went on a mission. Tell us more about him. That story, story may be surprising to a lot of Latter-day Saints, but... Uh but he, he did. He was, and he was not the only black man who was uh, uh, baptized during that era and received the priesthood and went on missions. But he's one of the most prominent ones, and he's really, he's really got a great, great story. 
Um, I think in the book it talks about a story of a couple that he converted, and he Eunice went on his way. Eunice and Charles Franklin. Yes, yes, Eunice and Charles Franklin. Then he goes on his way, and then he has the impression that all is not well with the Franklins, that they are faltering in their faith. And so he, go, so he goes back to, uh, to visit them and see where they're at, and they are indeed faltering. He talks to them, he counsels with them, he makes an appointment to preach in the local schoolhouse and invites them to come listen to them so that they can kind of have that fire of the Holy Ghost uh, again in their lives and kind of be reintroduced to the gospel. The neighbors, the members of the community there, they're sort of spreading lies about Elijah Abel that seem pretty obviously to be racist in, in uh, tone. They're saying he's a murderer. And he just, I, I love that he just takes them on. He, he holds the meeting in a public place and he just preaches the good word. And actually calls them out. If you want to take me, come take me now. Right. And the effect it has on Eunice and her husband, Charles? They're just absolutely blown away by his courage and by the words that he preaches. And they sell out and they move they on sell to Missouri. Out and move. I think it tells us something about Elijah Abel. Like He must have been a very eloquent, powerful speaker or at least able to bring the spirit. You know, I, I find it amazing that he hears inspiration, he feels he's got to go back, and then he goes back and he saves them. He brings them on to Zion. It's just such a beautiful part of the story. This is a great story, and you, you have to remember that it's difficult for a black man to live in that world, even though it's in the north where um, slavery is outlawed in many areas, yet you can see the racism that's in the culture. It's just endemic in the culture at the time. And so that's part of the things he has to deal with all the time. The chapter concludes with the calling of four new apostles, filling vacancies for some of the dissenters. Um, and these four new apostles include Wilford Woodruff, John Taylor, Willard Richards, and John Page men who are going to be very significant in coming events in church history. Yes, and they're all away at the moment. So they are, don't know right away that they've been called. They have to be informed by letter or messenger. And so it takes some time before they get the word that they have been called to the 12, and then they have to return to Missouri. Wilford Woodruff in, in uh, Saints, we learn he wasn't surprised. He, he had had a feeling that this was coming, and uh, when he receives the letter. I'm sure that must have been a comfort, honestly, rather than having it come out of the blue. <laughs> <laughs> but Wilford accepts the call, and we're going to learn a lot more about these dedicated saints and the impact that they're going to have on the church in future episodes of our podcast. Thank you so much, Jenny, for being here with us today, and thank you, Sarah, also for being with us. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. And as always, you can learn more about the saints at saints.lds.org, where you can see our latest videos, topics, and link to the chapters we've discussed today. I'm Ben Godfrey. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us today for Saints. And don't forget to read more of this historical narrative on lds.org or on your Gospel Library app. Join us again for our next episode, where we'll once again discover fascinating insights of church history found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the Latter Days. Thank you.